it's ongoing, but we don't treat it as that. You mentioned Walter Scott and that happened in 2015. Five years later, we have George Floyd and suddenly it's like something, people are acting like something woke up. Like, wait, wasn't this, what happened with Ferguson? What, weren't we supposed to have woken up then? Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Sophronia Scott grew up in Lorraine, Ohio, a hometown she shares with the author Toni Morrison. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in English from Harvard and an MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts. She began her career as an award-winning magazine journalist for Time and People. When her first novel, All I Need to Get By, was published in 2004, Sophronia was nominated for Best New Author at the African American Literary Awards. Her other books include the novel Unforgivable Love, an essay collection titled Love's Long Line, and a memoir she co-authored with her son titled This Child of Faith, Raising a Spiritual Child in a Secular World. Her most recent book, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton, was published in March of 2021. And in that book, on a chapter about resisting racism, she writes, If we don't become the truth-tellers, then a different kind of erosion can happen, in which resentment breeds, a resentment that would threaten the wholeness of my heart and soul. If nothing else, I must be whole and respond to racism in a way that is true to the depths of my being. So, Sophronia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I am happy to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I want to begin by asking you, what does the word contemplative mean to you, and how do you see it lived out in our world today? Now, that that second part, how do I see it lived out, you know, that's a difficult one, because to me, contemplation is an inner journey, right? It involves solitude, and it involves a reflection on what God has given that particular individual and how you're taking that in and walking through the world with that grace. So how do you see that? And, you know, how, how would I observe that? How would I know the world in general? I can see it in certain people, but the world in general, it's like we're coming out of a year of being a forced contemplation, right? At this point, the pandemic, right? So it, it's like that was a period where people suddenly did have to take stock and really look at the way they were living their lives. So so I would have to say that, that maybe it wasn't present in the world before in the way that, that it could be now. Yeah, just we navigate that differently based on the language that we used to maybe define it. But either way, we've all kind of become contemplatives. So being that we all kind of went to that meeting place together over the last year, I know in my experience, right, it created kind of this sense of deeper connectivity or deeper solidarity and connection to each other, right? Also seeing the things played out on the news between disparities of the issues related to COVID and racial injustice, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. So do you see or sense that our togetherness and that contemplation created a connection with social action or social justice? You you use the word togetherness, Cassidy. Uh, Actually, I think all of that happened because we had assumed early on that we were doing that together, right? It looked like we had gone into this pandemic and there was a spirit of togetherness, but it became apparent right away that we were not together in this, right? That people did not, were not experiencing this pandemic in the same way. Then what happened with with George Floyd put a very specific face on the whole thing, 
right? And, and then the people who realize that, okay, we are not together in this, then we need to do something about it. That's when the action came about. You know, um, Cassie, it's a very subtle type of thinking. We often don't know we're doing it. Like last night I was in a group of people, a large group, it was a Zoom group, and there was like a survey. One of the questions had been, have you, test, have you ever tested positive for COVID-19? Almost 90% of the group said no. And someone responded, well, isn't that, you know, that's great. We were safe. We took good care of ourselves. But then someone else said, no, that just means we were privileged. We don't notice. We don't realize. We just think, okay, we did it. But, but no, there was a reason why this may have been easier for you to be this way than for somebody else. So, so not together. We were not together. Yeah, I appreciate that reflection and that togetherness is, is definitely not, not a word that works there. And I think maybe it's more about the ways it was revealing and opened up the truth to us more clearly. And this this kind of reminds me of a story from your book, although it relates to a story from 1963. It's, you know, again, right, this this opening, this peeling back the curtains of the truth of what's happening. And in your book, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton. Hold on. Before we go to this story, I just want to ask, why talk to a dead white guy? <laughs> I think it connects to um, the other word you and I um, were going to talk about is mysticism. I think that if you contemplate on a certain level, it rises to connection. It, it rises to an experience of something. So this person, um, my experience in reading and engaging with the work of Thomas Merton was just a part of me so much that, that I was able to experience him on a different level was not my choice, right? It was not, you know, people, it's not like I get to choose who I'm going to to connect with. You know, I heard his words first, right? He could have been a Black person. I had no idea. I only heard the words. And the words are what drew me to him. Yeah, yeah. So going back to this 1963 story, you share a story about Thomas Merton responding to a young Black priest named Father August Thompson. And Father Thompson, like other Black priests and parishioners, could only receive communion after white people. He was prohibited from saying Mass, and Catholics refused to call him Father. And I wonder if you could share a little bit more about how Merton responded to Father August's letter, and more importantly, how this led to your own personal reflection of taking care of your heart first. Merton told him to to consider and Father August was specifically also complaining about his bishop at the time. And Merton told him, okay, you have to understand where he is coming from. It begins there. It begins with how you think about this person. It begins with seeing that person's humanity. That was striking to me, seeing how this man probably doesn't know how to think any other way than his white racist way, right? And, and that you have to start from that point. And when you do that, you are protecting your own heart you are protecting your own soul because you are not going to that place of antagonism. You are not going to that place of hatred, right? This is, this is really what he was trying to teach him was really the source of nonviolence because nonviolence is not, is not just about not fighting with the police. It is about not being nonviolent within, within your thoughts, within your heart, and to come at it from a, a holistic perspective with the feeling that we are all humans in this. It is not me against you. It's we are all in this together. This is truly the unity you're talking about. We are in this together. And how can we come to accept our, our humanity, our shared humanity? You know, how can you bring him away from that thought? How can, and, and, and he brings in the word faith, which I thought was absolutely interesting. 
okay, because faith means that there can be conversion. That means there is hope. That means this person's way of thinking can be changed, but you have to be in a place of your own faith and nonviolence to help bring that about. Yeah. And I think that that relates to another part in your book where you write, if we don't become the truth tellers, then a different kind of erosion happens in which resentment breeds. And I think along with that, I'm wondering, what do you think it means to be How do we hold the tension, rather, of being truth-tellers and contemplatives? What does that look like to embody truth-telling alongside a contemplative life? When you're a contemplative, you you come to see things a certain way. And you can either share that or it stays within you. And when I say resentment, I think about, you know, there are so many relationships, you know, marriages, friendships that go bad because there was something wrong going on there that wasn't spoken about, right? You didn't want to rock the boat, didn't want to get into a fight, and you don't say anything and everything looks great, but there is resentment because that thing has not been addressed. That that changes you, right? That's, again, where your nonviolence is going to be hurt. You have to you have to be in a space of, of being able to say your truth. But how, how do you do it? How do you do it so that it is from a place of love and innocence, like the child who said, well, the emperor has no clothes on, right? Um, he was stating it, you know, there's a fact. He, he, he wasn't saying it to, to shame the emperor or anything. He was just stating this fact. So how do you come at this to be able to say, in a way that people can hear, you are devaluing my humanity, You are devaluing my humanity, and that is what this is about. I am not angry with you, but you must see that there is something wrong here. And in order for us to heal, for you to heal, because it's not right that you feel this way too, this is hurting you too. How are we going to to work together to bring this about? That reminds me of, I think it's June Jordan that talks about telling the truth as being a political act. And I love that a political act can even take place in these just relational one-on-one times when we tell the truth to each other. Yeah, exactly. And it allows you, and it's not necessarily a truth that has to bring you down or feel like you're being blamed. It could be a truth that shines a light that allows you to see yourself in a different way and become something better to bring you to the fullness of who you really are. Yeah, definitely. You're having my mind go to so many different beautiful places and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how contemplative life and contemplation, when we go to really kind of meet ourselves in that inward place, is another form of truth-telling and truth-meeting maybe of ourselves and our inner being. Yeah. There was someone, I remember once there was in a conversation about, about therapy, about why people go to therapy. And on a certain level, being in therapy helps people bring to the surface things that they already know are there, but they're not addressing it. Like it's, it's been stuffed down or it's been avoided or it's been not addressed. And that is something, you know, we all know what is within us. We know something of where we come from and what we're thinking. So if we're willing to pay attention and to say, wow, yeah, I did that, or this is something odd about the way I think, you know, not only can it not be addressed, but, but it gives us an opportunity to say, okay, I'm okay anyway, right? By the grace of God, I'm I'm this egotistical or whatever you want to call it, self-centered person. But by the grace of God, I am here and I recognize this and I'm going to try today to be a better person. May not work out today, may have to do tomorrow, but I'm going to try to be different. I'm going to try to think differently, right? So that's what contemplation gives us. How can I reach for that dream that God has of me, for me, in any given challenging moment? Yeah. Yeah. One thing I, I loved in, in your chapter on race and racism 
and having a conversation with Merton about that. You mentioned many names um, in your book, including Walter Scott, who was murdered by the police in 2015. And you write, what really leaves our souls scorched and grieving is the casual behavior of the police officer who fires the weapon. It's as though this event were not extraordinary for him. And I wonder, you know, as we talk about these things like nonviolence and our relational meeting place and our true togetherness, what might you say it looks like? What does it mean to be a contemplative activist? And especially as it relates to police violence. I think it means finding some way to address that that nonchalance, right? Um, it was the same thing with um, with George Floyd, right? That, that that's one of the things people talked about, like how calm that guy was, that officer was, and how do you? There, there's again, there, there's something wrong there, right? There, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with that person's humanity, right? And is it going to get solved by adding hate on top of that? No, it's not. So how is it going to be addressed? How do, how do we come to, to bring this person to see that this is a life? This is a life, right? There, there's something wrong. There. There's something hugely wrong. And contemplation is, is to me, the, the constant considering of how, how do we come to bring an understanding to that person? It's not like I can fix him, right? Can't fix people. But there must be a way to, to help bring about understanding, and I may not come to an answer of that, but just being to understand that and to come from that point of, of awareness. And if enough people are coming from that point, we're, we're walking on a road, down a road that may eventually get us there. Police officers are acting out of fear, right? So they are in highly dangerous situations, but maybe there's something about them that they need to be contemplatives themselves, right? How can they better address um, or assess, I should say, assess a situation Right. Because that is the thing. Right. They, they overdo it. What is going on here? Does this. And, and I know they say, oh, but it's a split second moment. No, that guy was kneeling on that guy's neck for almost nine minutes. He did not have to do that. There were people pleading with him not to do that. Right. Something inside you have to say, OK, I need to do something different here. So what was it in, in that awareness that, that that didn't happen? And it's not like diversity training is necessarily going to get you there. But to be in an ongoing conversation, yeah, the training happens and then you go your way and you forget about it. How can you be in constant conversation with police officers to help them think about what they're seeing in any given instance? And can we help them see it in a different way to come from a point of humanity and not just thinking threat? They are, they protect and serve. That's on a lot of police cars, protect and serve. So how do you, how do you help them come to that mindset first? I have no answers, Cassidy, but, but this is where I think contemplation plays a role. Yeah. And it also reminds me of the connecting about earlier regarding truth telling. And I think, you, you know, one thing I'm learning as a white person is about, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had between white people and to navigate these things. And, and even the recognition, right, that the police's relationship to systems, systems of oppression, the systems it was built upon and systems of racism. And yeah, I mean, there's just so many, so many layers. And, and I'm really struck by kind of going back to that thought of truth telling, what can we do? We can tell the truth and, you know, peel back clenched fists and be present to what we know is true and, and speak to that. Yeah, because otherwise, and, and this is my concern about the the current social justice movement is that it's it's ongoing but we don't treat it as that right you mentioned Walter Scott and that happened in 2015 
right? And so five years later, we have George Floyd. And suddenly it's like something, people are acting like something woke up. Like, wait, wasn't this, what happened with Ferguson? What, weren't we supposed to have woken up then? Um, I'm sorry, Dylan Roof walked into a church and, and killed a whole room of Black people. So why didn't that wake us up? <laughs> Right. So th- this is this is where I have to protect my heart and, and, and see it as, as an ongoing journey and that this is this is like a wave that's going to disappear. The problem's still going to be here. Right. So I could get really resentful about that and cynical and say, oh, here we go again. <laughs> or else I can be the truth teller and say exactly what I just said and say, look, this is this is not a new thing. So if we keep rediscovering this, obviously there's something wrong with the way we think we're solving this. So how do we need to look at this differently? Right. Yeah, we could we could list names, you know, back to Emmett Till and even still that wasn't the beginning. That wasn't the beginning at all. We have to we have to come at this from each person's experience and their own humanity, right? I just told you about how I I want to teach my son how to behave when a police car stops him, right? But you also have to know that my son my son's experience of police is very different. He does not fear the police, right? And we've had discussions. We looked at the George Floyd video. We talk about this all the time. And he said to me, um, and this was just a few months ago, he said, but mama, you have to remember that my experience of the police is different. I, I hope I don't cry here. Um, and, and I don't know if you know this, Cassidy, but I, you know, we live in Sandy Hook. My son was in third grade. He was, he was in the Sandy Hook school during those shootings. A, a dear friend of ours, uh, his godbrother died. He has lived with police outside his school for years. He, you know, they shake his hand like they have been. He knows the police intimately with police who live down the street. So to him, the police are there to protect. The police are his friends. Right. And I'm not going to take that away from him. I'm not going to say, yeah, but, but police can do this. No, because that has not been his experience. And, and I said to him, even when he said that, that that brought to a realization to me. And I said to him, you know, Tane, that could be, your experience could be the source of your nonviolence. That if you are in an experience, like with your friends, and, and there's some sort of encounter with the police, you may be the truth teller that helps um, de-escalate a situation because you don't come from a point of fear where the police are concerned, right? So how do I help him use that as, as a power? And this is also like a kind of thing where contemplation comes in action. He has to be aware of that, right? To, to know that that is in him. And he already, you know, for him to bring it up to me, he, he's obviously already aware of it. So it's up to me to say, okay, here's, that's a superpower. Here's how to use that superpower, Tane, right? Yeah. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. So you also write about white friends being stunned by the continued racism in America. And you speak of this as a betrayal in which there continues to be a lack of fruitful conversation, commenting that many white folks begin to sound like the trope, I have black friends. And it's here in the book when you turn to Merton's readings of James Baldwin. I was aware of Merton reading The Fire next time, and he did write a letter to James, didn't he? And I wonder if you could share a little bit more about what Merton said about Baldwin. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm going to read from you. This is what he wrote in his journal. He said... Baldwin. Baldwin seems to know exactly what he is talking about, and his statements are terribly urgent. One of the things that makes most sense, an application of the ideas behind nonviolence, but I think it is absolutely true, that the sit-in movement is not just to get the Negroes a few hamburgers. It is for the sake of the white people and for the country. 
he is one of the few genuinely concerned Americans, one who, whose concern I, re, I can really believe. The liberation of the Negroes is necessary for the liberation of the whites and for their recovery of a minimum of self-respect in reality. Above all, he makes very shrewd and pointed statements about the futility and helplessness of white liberals who sympathize but never do anything. While a few have got beat up on freedom rides, this is true, but really the whole picture is pitiful. A scene of helplessness, inertia, stupidity, erosion. So I think it's interesting how he brings up that we all have something at stake here. Right? This isn't just being allowed to sit in a restaurant, right? This is about how all of us address our, our, our own humanity, right? And if we can't get if we can't get this right, you know, wh- where are we? Where are we as a people? And he was noticing that that James Baldwin, you know, is is expressing this concern. And it's even amazing, you know, knowing how fiery James Baldwin could be, that as Merton points out, he is still coming from a place of nonviolence. He is being a truth teller, right? And he's also coming from a point of compassion. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we could shift a little bit to to the mystical conversation. You know, hearing some of these stories, it's almost like you stumbled upon Merton. You said you didn't choose him and then uncovered some of these really powerful relationships and and thoughts that he had on on various issues. And I wonder if you consider if you consider meeting Merton in that way and coming across his writings and whatnot. Do you consider that in and of itself a mystical experience? I think coming across his writings, you know, I I said earlier I think contemplation leads to the mystical. So he has been part of my contemplation. When I went to his monastery in Kentucky, I felt I had a mystical experience there. And, and it was totally unexpected. And, and it, it wasn't until I was standing at his grave weeping that I realized that there was a closeness that I felt that I was, I was missing him and, and experiencing him all at once during my time there. So I feel that and it's the same thing with with any um, connection that that if if we steep ourselves in it enough, we can we can touch the divine, right? Isn't this what we want? We want to have some sacramental experience of of God in our lives, right? And and maybe it's easier to do that through you know people who have been flesh and blood, right? Isn't that wasn't that the point of Christ, right? Right, to, to give us a way to reach for such connection, right? To understand how to do that. I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> I don't I don't know theological if what I'm saying is theologically sound, but I can only share what what I experience. And there is something all around us that sustains us. And the mystical is when we can reach for that and to know that there is something beyond the veil. That's what I think of the mystical. And I think that's what the mystics were able to do, that, that they were so steeped in their study and reflection and in their prayer that they were able to, able to feel the sense of God and, and, and to feel God at work in their lives. So the mystics aren't necessarily like special people. I think it's something that's available to all of us. But do we take the time to come away from the noise to, to, hear, to hear anyone? I think that the people who have left us are still around, but they also leave, they leave clues. And when you connect with something that they've left behind, this may sound like a really silly tangent, but I've, I've recently kind of rediscovered the music of the Bee Gees. 
And I've just been absolutely fascinated by their music, by some of the things that Robin Gibb himself has said and written. And at first I thought, you know, am I'm hearing this with different ears for some reason. And I'm thinking about that song, To Love Somebody, right? You know, there's a light, a certain kind of light that never shone on me. You know, I want my life to be, you know, lived with you. And and there's something about the sound of that song. And then I did hear an interview where I think it was someone from Rolling Stone who said, this music does have a spiritual aspect. And it touched people in ways that they didn't realize. And I realized, okay, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that now at a different level than when I was, what, 12 and first heard that music. And so it's it's making me go back and, and look at their thinking to look at their experiences and to see that these were deeply spiritual guys, but not in the way that you expect. You know, Robin Gibb was in a deadly train accident when he was 19. And he said, as that train is rolling over and over, it, that, that crash killed 50 people. In an interview later, he said, I thought about God. And he's like, I'm not a church going person, but it, but in that moment, I thought about God. It brought him to a place that that feeling brought him to a place that when that train stopped rolling, he was able to then function. He got his girlfriend out of that train. He got a bunch of people out of that train that day. And I recognized it. I recognized what he was talking about, that sense of being in a traumatic situation and recognizing, feeling that I wasn't alone, that I'm, I'm going to be okay. And since I'm okay, then I can function. I need to see how I can help people out of this thing. Cassidy, sometimes I think about that and I'm like, man, why is Robin Gibb dead? Because I want to talk to him about that, right? Here I've discovered these words of someone who's experienced God in a certain way. And it's like, oh my gosh, but he's not here anymore. <laughs> right? Next book, next book. Oh my gosh, no. But, but, but you see what I mean? That the, There are connections out there, right? We have to just understand what's going on within ourselves so that we can reach out and, and find it, you know, elsewhere out there with other people. Yeah. You said you talked earlier about, so contemplation leading to mysticism or mystical encounter. And then I love hearing this story about the Bee Gees and you almost recognizing the truth teller in the song and creating like a mystical encounter between his output connecting with with your almost your work and your output right like there's this beautiful encounter that takes place when we're able to recognize the mystical in each other recognize you know the imago day in each other yeah yeah exactly oh what is that song from um sorry night fever when i see your eyes in the morning light how deep is your love the word savior is in that song you come to me in, in the deepest darkest time you're my savior when i call you don't just use that word lightly they use that word with an understanding so yeah to recognize that that we are all speaking a certain language merton talks about that about finding a spiritual companions that we don't have you know we don't you don't make friends just yes you have friends but then there are friends who truly understand the journey you're on and who have that same type of connection right and it's fantastic when you can find them and they're alive but for some reason I keep coming across these ones who are dead and I also love that it was a piece of music I'm really I'm really struck by this I love that it's a piece of music because I'm really interested right now in yes yeah, sounds and vibrational things that kind of take us elsewhere that enliven our body and help us to go to like an embodied space I wonder if you experienced that you know, you talk about your, your time at the monastery, if you experienced any kind of like a vibrational encounter. I know you mentioned the silence of, of the monastery. Yes. You and I talking about music and I was, you know, in the, the church and praying and, but it was the silence that struck me when I went for a hike and standing by a lake, a deep, deep 
silence. I was just absolutely mesmerized by it. It felt like I could step inside it and, and put it on, like wrap it around me. And I just felt like, okay, this is if this is the silence that Merton heard, I could I could see why he wanted to be out here all the time. It just it feels like, you know, the voice of God is out here. <laughs> right? That God speaks in silence. I, I was just absolutely enthralled with it. That's another thing about about those mystical encounters, mystical experiences. We're all, we also go to this wordless place, this place where, you know, you want to tell your friends or you want to explain it to somebody. And it's just like, nobody had that but you. Nobody gets that but you. It's such a beautiful gift when we're given gifts that are wordless because we go to that mind-boggling place that almost makes us become a child again. Yes, but I'm a writer, so that I can be crazy to not have the words, right? <laughs> and and really, that's that's what this book is about. Is you know, people express interest in in how I talk about Merton, and so really, this book is about me trying to explain that. It's like, okay, well, here's how I engage with this person, and not on a theological and not on an academic level, but personally, this is what it means to have words move me to the point of of letting it affect and influence my life. I can learn, I can, I can change, and I can find a deeper way into connection with, with my alpha and my omega, you know, through someone who, who did it himself. Yeah. So going back to the conversation we were having earlier about social justice issues, you know, we talked a little bit about how contemplation can maybe inform protests and movements do you think mysticism also plays a role or can play a role in informing or undergirding movements of social justice? Maybe, you know, especially if you get to a place of how do I think like that person, right? What would Martin Luther King Jr. have done? How, how would Gandhi approach this? Right? People who, who thought very deeply about nonviolence, um, even looking back at how, how they did things. So, so for example, the people who protested with Martin Luther King Jr. had had to prepare, right? They they were taught to prepare for their protests. They had to read, they had to study scripture, they really had to grasp the nonviolence within themselves and to know that they were not going to respond in hatred and violence no matter what happened at that protest site. So if if we go back to that place now to to really think about okay, what was it like for them, what can we take and, and learn from someone like John Lewis, right? How do I channel John Lewis as I'm standing here across from this police line, right? It may be easier to do than we realize if we think about it exactly in that way. Um, I'm wondering if we slip in and out of personalities. You know, my friend Jenny once said she, she would go shopping and, and sometimes she would bring back something for me and she said, you know, I think I was being you when I bought this. <laughs> this isn't these earrings are more you than they are me. But I was I was in the, you know, I was in your frame of mind, right? I love these themes of, you know, contemplative space being a place of truth telling and invigorating us to tell the truth and mysticism mysticism being kind of this place of, you know, namaste, seeing the god in you and recognizing um the god in you and the god in myself. And I love I love the way you, yeah, call to us to consider those who have died and consider what they might do in given situations and what they have done in given situations. I think one of the things I'm, I'm trying to ask is related to, you know, sometimes we can't get to that place of mysticism of recognizing the God in each other when both people aren't telling the truth. 
Right? Like I can't fully honor you unless you're bringing your true self to me in this place, right? In our togetherness. And and I think that can really complicate things. If you have two inauthentic people, like what is, actually, isn't that what we're seeing get played out in politics right now? <laughs> right? That, that people are coming to the table uh, inauthentically, right? Expressing that they know not to be true. So, so and, and you kind of have a stalemate there because they, they are invested in these untruths. That, that is bewildering. So something has to shift there. Something has to shift. And maybe it's something in, at the core of us, right? My son once said when I was doing a diversity training for my job, right? And it was via Zoom. And so he, you know, was waiting for me in my office and he was listening to some of it. And he said to me, Mama, that's that stuff they're telling you. That sounds like stuff people should have learned at home when they were kids. <laughs> I said, yeah, team. <laughs> you know, so it's like, but they didn't. And and so sometimes it's like recognizing something as, as basic, like, wow, what we're learning here is common sense. Well, why why is this not, you know, automatic, right? I don't know, Cassidy. <laughs> yeah, and I think... I do, I do think it's possible to be, and correct me if you, if you disagree, I think it's possible to be, you know, maybe we don't know the full truth of ourselves, but if we're still willing to come with honesty and vulnerability, I think we can still meet each other in that place of, of mystical encounter. I agree. Is it Rumi, the, the mystic poet, says that there's out there that there's an open field, I'll, I'll meet you there. <laughs> Yes. You know, because we, we have to know. Simply, for example, me stand, sitting here telling you, I don't know, right? So I could be in a place of thinking, I can't, I can't say to Cassidy, I don't know, because I'm being interviewed. I'm supposed to know something. I wrote a book. No. <laughs> it's starting from that place of I don't know and being open to the fact that we are not complete and we are, we are ever-changing. But, but to me, that's also hope. That's possibility. Like if, if we can come to the table with with what's missing like only then can can we find the possibility of of completion Mm, beautifully stated is there someone or some people that embody mysticism to you or for you i mentioned robert vivian you know robert vivian he was actually the one who who read the passage of merton that that brought me to merton in the first place Uh, robert vivian is a, a talented writer and he's he's in the english department at Elma College, which is where I now run the MFA program. I'm the director of the MFA. But Robert Vivian writes these prose poems called Dervish Essays, and they're very full of of the um, ecstatic. And he is someone who is constantly, I, I can't, I'm not sure if I can describe it. You can tell that he is taken in like a sponge, absorbing constantly every single moment what is going on around. But when you read his work, and his latest book is called All I Feel is Rivers. It just came out. You you get the sense that this is a person who, through that contemplation, has touched on something mystical, that he is communicating with a higher power and recognizing there will be a moment. And there's a line where he has it says something like that, that he will put everything that is that is him, he will put it all down and stand there naked, right, before that power. And in that place of vulnerability, I, I just feel like you can't write something like that unless you know what it is to encounter that great love and, and your great source. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. And, you know, as soon as we get off here, I'm about to go listen to the Bee Gees. Yay! 
<laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to enfleshed.com. 